welcome to InsureTech Insider, coming to you live from the 11FS office in WeWork London. I'm Sarah Koshansky from 11FS, and in today's show, we're looking into all things related to life insurance. We're going to talk about how tech can be used to change the status quo in this area of insurance, which many consider to be even further behind the rest of the industry when it comes to innovation. And to talk about this with us, we're joined by some fantastic guests. Uh, we're joined by Oliver Ralph, insurance correspondent at the FT. Welcome back, Oliver. How are you doing? Very well, thank you. Very well. Um, and we're also joined by a new guest, Jonathan Rumer, co-founder of ULife. Uh, so, Jonathan, welcome to the show. Thank you. Very excited to be here. Just one quick thing. You're, you're pretty brave to take on life insurance. You know, it reminds me of a, a quote from Woody Allen who said, there's few things in life worse than death, one of which is spending the night with an insurance salesman. <laughs> so, best of luck. We will, we will hold on to that for future use. I'm sure, we could, uh, I'm sure we can find a use for that quote. Could you start off by giving us a quick summary of what you do um, and what your life does? Yeah, sure. Very excited to. So ULife is an insurtech business and our mission is to empower people to look after themselves financially, mentally and physically. It might sound like a bit of a strange mission for a life insurance business, but actually it's the only type of mission that makes sense for a life insurance business. If you think about it, if people live longer, healthier, happy lives, that's kind of good for the person. And it's really great for us in an insurance company because we pay out later or, or less often. So our mission is really to help people be their best selves. And the way we do that is through an app that we've built um, where a lot of our magic sits and we use game mechanics from the likes of Candy Crush and Fortnite to encourage and reward people for doing all those healthy, happy behaviours. Brilliant. Well, I look forward to hearing more about it. Before we take a deep dive today, uh, let's just be clear that there are lots of different types of life insurance. The main one, uh, so far as I'm aware, is called level term life insurance, which is a set payout on the event of your death to your dependents. You know, what else is out there or is there an easy way to kind of uh, segment the different types of life insurance out there on the market? Uh, for me, I, I always kind of divide it into to two categories. One is what they call protection. This pays out if something bad happens, like somebody dying or somebody getting ill or yourself getting ill or a relative getting ill, you, you pay your premiums in. And then if and when that bad thing happens, you get a payout. That's one category. The other category is savings, most often retirement savings. So you, you save every month towards your retirement. And then there are products at the end of uh, your working life to help you fund your life uh, in your retirement. The thing with life insurance is that it's different in every country. Each country has its own little market, its own tax laws, its own sort of traditions of how people like to buy and sell these products and exactly what there are. But broadly speaking, I think those are the two main categories that people like to, to buy. Do you agree with that, Jonathan? Does that make sense to you? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, there are lots of different types of insurance and life insurance out there. For the vast majority of people, a very simple product is generally what's appropriate. So, I mean, you know, if we're, if we're looking at some of these simple products, um, you know, when is the best time in your life to be thinking about life insurance? Because presumably maybe that changes depending on the product. Um, we, you know, this is just based, uh, this question is based on an anecdote that one of our colleagues told us, which was that, um, when she went to get a mortgage, she was sold life insurance at the same time, which apparently is quite common. So that feels like that's one stage in your life when you when you might find it pushed on you, if you like. When else is kind of a, a, a common um Yes, when you take on a mortgage is one sort of classic way. Alternatively, maybe when you get married or when you have children, as soon as your life changes so that maybe you have dependents or or you have somebody who would suffer in the event of you getting ill, not being able to work or even dying. The other thing is on the sort of saving side for retirement, the 
the insurance companies will always say the best time to start is as early as possible. The earlier you start saving, the more you can accumulate for your retirement, the more comfortable you're going to be. But if you're just graduating from university, I think life insurance is probably pretty low down <laughs> your list of priorities, however good you, you think it might be eventually. Jonathan, what about you? I mean, does Life target any particular demographic, any particular point? Yes, we target SMEs and young SMEs as well. So primarily it will be millennials and people up to the age of around 35. We do know that a lot of young people aren't interested in life insurance because they don't see the need or the value for it in their own. Um, however, there is quite an interesting move now towards not only using life insurance as a way to protect and show the ones you care for that you love them, but also as a way to leave a legacy if, God forbid, something should happen before you've had a chance to actually create your career. So I've seen some great ads and marketing out there talking about how you can use life insurance proceeds if you get hit by the bus to actually give it to charity or to fund people or causes that you want to. Um, as a different way of using the proceeds. So, so you can take it out at any point throughout your life, even even if you're into sort of what we would call older age, shall we? Or maybe retirement age, is that is that more subtle? <laughs> yeah, you can. The, the prices change and the, and the products change. The kind of protection you might need when you're retiring, maybe by that stage you have children and they're grown up and, and they're no longer so financially dependent on you. Maybe, but maybe at that stage you're thinking, well, I need to protect myself in case I outlive my savings. I've only got saved a certain amount of money. When I get to the 90s, if I reach the 90s, I'm going to maybe need some money for some care. How am I going to fund that? So that'll be a different kind of life insurance product. But uh, the insurance companies are very, very inventive, and uh, they will always find a new life insurance product <laughs> that you ought to buy. I mean, so with that in mind, how, how difficult is it to know what, what the right product is? Because I'm sure if I just, well, I have, in fact, just typed life insurance into Google and gone, I've literally no idea what any of this means. <laughs> is, it, is it complicated to sort of find the right cover for you? So, yes, it is. But I think that is not the way it should be or needs to be. Ultimately, life insurance is, is, is simple. It's money when you die. So now there's obviously lots of flavors of, of how you get that, but there's such a big gap in the market now, or protection gap it's called, which means a lot of people don't have any insurance or don't have enough. So for the vast majority of people, getting a completely vanilla life insurance product will meet most of their needs without having to look at all the, the specifics and get that absolutely perfect product. Over time, a lot of the products have been made complicated to provide additional value to subsets of groups of people. And when you want to become one of those types of people, then it is more likely you will need to speak to a professional to help you to find the right specific product that fits your, your exact needs. I, th- I think the insurance industry has been absolutely awful in developing and explaining the products it has in, in life insurance. It creates new products all the time and it gives them ever more complicated, ill-fitting names that don't mean anything to anyone. A, a classic example I always think is that for years and years, one of the main types of saving pro- products was called with profits policies. With <laughs> profits, they went on. This This is what everyone must buy. This is marvellous. Profits that, for who? Well, this is it. The, what, what is with profits? Who's Profits. The name is utterly meaningless to most people. And yet for years and years and years, this was what the life insurance industry said was its main thing. Now they've replaced with profits. They don't like doing that anymore. They like doing something called unit-linked policies oh, instead. wonderful. Much Equal, clearer. Equally <laughs> meaningless. And, and it goes on and on and on. And the, there is a lot of confusion. Part of it, I think, is probably deliberate. There are a lot of people who generate a, an income from having to explain difficult products to, to people who don't understand them. So there is... Uh, a certain element that that I think the insurance like things to be confusing but I think ultimately they need to make it simpler for people if they want to sell more of this. Yeah, I, I completely agree with that. And the With Profits is a, is, a, is a great example. And historically, there was some really good behind it. 
the idea with of with profits policies is that if the insurance company made excess profit from their investment, they would share it with the policyholders. So there really was a great theory behind it. Unfortunately, it did become very complicated and it could be got oversold and missold and all the other wonderful things that happen with insurance. But going back to its roots, there is some good stuff there and it's something that we're looking at, not from an, from an investment point of view, but from a health point of view, that if, if people live longer and healthier and reduce their risk with us, we want to reward people for that. So going back to the same mechanics as with profits, but labeling it and explaining it in a simple way. It sounds like, uh, as with so many things in insurance, like the first thing we need to deal with is the language and then we Absolutely, can work yes. on the products afterwards. So you just mentioned there, Jonathan, you know, uh, living a healthier life. Maybe um, you could give us a little bit more insight into actually if you're going, you know, for life insurance, what factors are actually considered? So what are you going to have to actually have to do when you when you go and apply for it? So this, this is an amazing one. So basically since around 1850, when a guy named Edward Rowe Moore, if I, if I remember correctly, was potentially the first actuary created the first life insurance policy that depended on age. Before that, you could buy a policy and it was just a fixed price. So he brought in age as the first thing that uh, changes your your risk, which which makes sense. Shortly after, there were a couple of other things that came in. So your, your smoking status and if you've got a high BMI. And basically nothing has changed in the last 250 years. Those are the three <laughs> main things that will affect somebody's life insurance. So your age, your smoking status, and if you're overweight. And a lot of life insurance companies today will use a few other things, but basically that's it. There, there is another area, though, coming along the, the rail track that people should be aware of in terms of the information that insurers use or don't use, and that's genetic information. You can imagine that will be enormously valuable for a life insurance company if they know genetically you are more or less likely to develop a certain condition in later life. That could make a huge difference to the price of your life insurance. Now, there are lots of ethical concerns mm-hmm. about that. So at the moment in the UK and lots of other countries, there is an agreement or, or sometimes laws that the insurers are not allowed to use genetic data. But that could change. There are a lot of insurers who quite like to use genetic data. Likewise, there are a lot of customers that can use genetic data. I can go online and buy myself a genetic testing kit and maybe find out for myself what I'm more likely to get. So I think that is going to evolve over time. I don't know whether the current ban or or agreement will remain in in place, but the wider availability of genetic testing, I think, will add on to the things that Jonathan was talking about, the, the, the weight and the smoking and the age, as something that insurance companies might be able to use eventually to judge how long you might live and how much you should pay for your life insurance. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, the genetics, I, th- I think if there's a moratorium until 2020, which will most likely be renewed, but there are many other areas that are, are similar and other data points that can be used where insurers have to be careful if they're going to cross the creepy line, basically. You know, there's one of the things that's really interesting is one of the biggest things that affects people's mortality is, is their social status. So your social ability, do you have friends, especially as you get older, a lot of old men die of loneliness. It's actually a cause of death if if their wives pass away, they die of loneliness. So I was talking to an insurer who was looking at trying to find ways of coming up with a proxy for your, your social well-being. And it's a bit scary, but what they did is they, they would connect into your, your social media profiles and have a look at whether you were reaching out to more people or people were reaching out to you. So basically, if you sent more friend requests than you received, then they said, you're not so good socially and we're going to penalize you. Oh, goodness. So that's definitely <laughs> there's ethical questions there. Line there, isn't there? there really <laughs> exactly. Is. So there's, there's lots of things that, that insurers can do and lots of data out there. And I think the biggest thing going forward 
is explaining to people what you want to do with their data very clearly and asking them, obviously, their, their permission is we have to do for that. Ultimately, though, when, when it comes to using data, there's, there's a very interesting thing you have to look at is the more data we have, the more accurately we can price individuals. So that's fantastic because we can provide a lot more personalization. But the way the insurance industry works is that everything's a massive average. So if we start giving some people better rates, that means we have to give other people worse rates. Now, that means that maybe that's fine because they're less healthy, but it also means that people might get excluded. So I'm in favor of the personalization, but there's definitely a lot of work that needs to be done and to this, make sure it's fair. This is where the problems with genetic data come in. It, it would render some people uninsurable. If, if it looks likely in your genes that you're very likely to get some sort of condition in later life, your insurance is going to be so expensive as to be unaffordable. Likewise, if it looks likely that you're going to get no conditions in later life, your insurance is going to be very cheap and you might wonder why on earth you need to borrow, <laughs> spend money in, in the first place. Yeah, I mean, so, I mean, just to take that, you know, one step back, Back there is basically what it sounds like is you know the same as we've seen in a lot of other areas of insurance. It's it's the ability to absorb and analyze more data, and it's the technology that's driving that, that's making it cheaper and easier. Because you know we go back to eighteen fifty and that one actuary, well he was presumably manually looking at all the data points and working out an average. You know now we can crunch all these numbers and pull in all these different data sources. You know what what are some of the are there any particular technologies that you know help with life insurance? I'm thinking maybe you know Fitbit spring to mind that that kind of thing. Are there any sort of particular areas that are pertinent to this this uh, subsector of insurance, if you like? There's a lot that are, that's being used uh, to to monitor people's health. You, you mentioned Fitbits. There's a, an insurer called Vitality, it originally started in uh, South Africa. They famously use Fitbits to monitor your your health, and the more exercise you do, the the cheaper your insurance policy is. And, and does it also track how many glasses of wine you have after you've done the run? Not as far as I know yet, but uh, but that might be coming down the line. But certainly, there's a lot of lot more initiatives to use. This this kind of stuff to to improve your improve your lifestyle and and make it make it less likely that you'll need to make a claim. Hundred percent. I mean, this this is exactly where we're going as a business. This is, this is how how we're doing it. Is that we want to encourage people to make small changes on a daily basis that end up adding to big gains. So well-being and mortality is very much around doing small things consistently. So we're going to be doing a lot of that with people, so helping them to do a little bit of extra walking, doing a little bit of extra relaxing, sleeping better, eating better, rewarding people for doing that and then adjusting their their risk as as we go along with them specifically to uh, to get to that end. And is that I don't know if, that, if that's legal. I'm sure it's legal. But um, this takes us back to the ethical question again, I suppose, to a certain extent. And do you think, you know, while saying the genetics question is definitely off the table, are there also ethical questions around, you know, presumably there are some people who are who are unable to do that. So if you are disabled, for example, there's no way you can up how much walking you're doing. Yeah, of course. So the way that we, we work is that we, we like to think of ourselves as all carrot and no sticks. So we start at a, at a very good default for everyone and we only encourage and reward people for doing good behaviors. We never penalize for people who, who don't do it. Ultimately, you know, it's, it's really their loss more than anything else. And we want to be there to help people to, to improve. The disabled one's interesting. You can still track, not obviously not steps if a person's in a wheelchair, but you can you can check the, the revolutions that they, they're doing and that can actually be used as a, as a proxy for, for the same type of exercise. Unfortunately, there are people who, who aren't even able to do that. Um, and, you know, we, we can still provide them with a the protection, but we wouldn't necessarily be able to provide all of all of the the, the, the incentives under purely moving. However, 
the the well-being is not just around physical there is also mental and financial so we would be able to help and reward people for 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 doing mindfulness for for eating well for sleeping well and the other areas for to improve their general well-being not just exercise and this fits into what are what i think is an evolution of business models for a lot of insurance companies they they used to be very much you pay the premium once a year or once a month however often it was and then if something bad happens they would send you a check and a lot of them are trying to have a much closer relationship with the customers, so the, the the Fitbits and that kind of thing is one way of doing that. They they want to be seen as more of a, a partner and, and sort of a lot more contact with their customers. What I think is interesting is whether customers want a lot more contact with their life insurance company. <laughs> I'm not entirely convinced that they do, but nevertheless, that's the way that a lot of insurance companies want to go. I mean, there's there's two points there. I just want to take it back a step, and then we can talk about you know um, increased contact. But that sounded really creepy. I didn't mean that to sound creepy. What I was going to say was, so does that? So what we're talking about there, you know, increased data sources and um, increased ability to crunch that data does that help you to offer insurance to people who maybe previously would have been excluded so what about pre-existing medical conditions so i i believe i've seen some companies um i think in south africa doing work with diabetes so you know diabetes has previously been a condition that may have affected your life insurance policy premiums you know is it helping to make policies for those people aim be more accessible and be fairer um yeah of course i think that company might be called all care um, uh, in in south africa um there was a policy recently launched here in in the uk by the exeter as well specifically for people with diabetes and also actually with a very high bmi and it really is great it's the first in in a long line of think of policies to come for people with specific conditions diabetes is is a very interesting one because it's very easy to track it's very easy to treat and it's very easy to see if the results are coming through so with the exeter they're doing a great job in incentivizing people to lead a healthy life and then to reduce the premiums if they prove that they are actually doing it so 100 percent, i think more data will allow more people to get cover for yeah very specific conditions and then to go back to that point about, you know, increased contact with your insurer. So we, we talked quite early on about how it can be quite complicated to know what you want. And, and I'm, I'm guessing there are people out there who have their first baby and go, oh, my God, I need life insurance. Where do I start? Um, is one of these things about, you know, increased contact helping you to learn as you go? Is, is, kind of, is, is this a, uh, I'm guessing I'm getting down the point, is like it's part of the problem, the models, but also part from the education around it. Yeah. And that, this, this, I think, is one of the, the big challenges for for making life insurance more digital and, and, and putting it online that this education sort of side of it because traditionally life insurance policies have been sold traditionally there's been an agent of some sort involved or a financial advisor who has sold these products and you've gone to see the person and they've sat down and explained to you what it is and how do you sign the form and, and that that kind of thing can you do that online is is the question really people are used now to buying car insurance and home insurance and travel insurance online because they're relatively straightforward and sometimes you need them by law and you it's a few clicks and you do it and that's fine but these these life insurance policies which are a lot more complicated potentially a lot more expensive with a lot more money at stake how comfortable are people going to be dealing with that on their own in front of a computer and and can companies can insurance companies create apps or, or services that will enable people to do that and, and and encourage people to do that without having a real person sitting in front of them saying, listen, you need to do this. And what, what's striking to me is that if you go across to, to Asia, where some of the most interesting advances in sort of insurance technology have been, there, life insurance is still very much sold 
There are millions and millions of agents in, in Asia and particularly in China whose job it is to sell life insurance. It's not done online. There are efforts to try and do that. Aviva in Hong Kong has got a tie-up with Tencent to try to develop online sales of, of life insurance. But in Hong Kong generally, it's still very much agent-driven. And I think one of the interesting challenges is whether whether that can be moved to a more direct kind of model. Do you think there's an emotional connection here when you're talking about something that is it, I mean, it's so emotive, right? It, talking about your death or even your premise mature death that's something not a lot of people want to think about i'm guessing no and people don't want to think about it so therefore they avoid it and also there's very much a perception of complexity so with all those kind of things in mind you you do avoid doing it uh, the, i'm currently writing a blog which is called people's reasons for not buying life insurance <laughs> or bs um <laughs> which will be interesting once it's once it's done <laughs> But I think there's, there certainly is a movement towards being online and being direct. I think just generally the way that everything is going to every service is being bought online. Um, so it will certainly take time. The younger generation will, will, will adopt it before, before others. But does it not also need the insurance companies to think more about the products they sell and to yes. develop products that can be sold more easily online? Yes, 100% agreed. 100% agreed. A, a lot of products at the moment to Theresa at Oliver's point are just too complicated to be sold online. It's 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 interesting. So so one of the one of the companies uh, has something like you know 120,000 different versions. If you if you compare the different the, every, every different combination of wow. their products, so it is it is impossible for for an individual to to do that without. So, so does that mean that the question we often um, ask when we're on the show, we're talking about different types of insurance, particularly travel insurance or, or car insurance, is that it's actually a race to the bottom on price here? Because like, I don't actually care who's providing my travel insurance. I want to know I'm covered in the event because I'm a reasonably young, reasonably healthy person who's going to Greece. So actually what I really want cover for is like my flight being cancelled and my bags being lost. I don't necessarily want cover for like having a heart attack in the swimming pool. But if you're, you know, is, is that necessarily, is that something we haven't got to yet with life insurance? Or, you know, talking about there how difficult it is to buy it online. Is that we're still trying to work that out and then maybe five years down the line we'll talk about a race to the bottom of price? I think it's difficult because at the moment everyone's uh, situation is is very different. Mm-hmm. Everyone's needs is different. Everyone's family is different. And it's very difficult to go and say, right, I'm going to get quotes for exactly the same policy from five different companies. Maybe that's the way it ought to go. Maybe if, if, if insurance companies are doing it right, they will create products that can be more easily understood and therefore easily compared. But at the same time, I think they will try to resist anything that could lead, as you say, to a race to the bottom on price. That's one of the things they don't like about price comparison sites is that they encourage people to do that. So they may well be tempted to to keep it slightly more complicated in the hope that people won't buy just on price. They'll have to recognize that that's going to be an important consideration. Yeah, so I think that around 40% of direct online life insurance sales go through aggregator websites. Mm-hmm. So, that's, so that's interesting. So already 40% of people yeah, are so buying that, it from so money that's, So that's people who, yeah, who are buying it online. And people who are buying it online is still a small percentage of the overall life insurance sales. Most go through 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 brokers and offline sources. On the aggregator website, it's a complete race to the bottom. And... I have the benefit now of kind of knowing what the, the wholesale rates are. So when I go into the aggregator website and have a look, a lot of the insurers there are, are quoting prices that have sub-10% margins for them. 
So there is no way that they can operate that in a profitable fashion. So they're just trying to, to grab market share and then kind of hope to hell at some point they can make it work, which is not great because if you're not making enough money on people, then you, you, you're not going to treat people fairly o- over, over time. But do you think people are less likely to, to churn with their life insurance? I mean, people, people in car and home insurance and travel now, they, they shop around every year. They're used to saying, right, well, I was with this company last year. I'm going to be with this one this year. Do you think people will do that with life insurance or do you think there might be a bit no, more so, so I think loyalty is probably a strong word. I think it's more that people forget about it. So by design, life insurers have not contacted their, 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 their people because you give someone a 20-year policy, whatever it is, and you hope they stick it in a drawer and forget about it because that's, that's how they keep up their, their user numbers. So the average is people keep their life insurance policy for seven years. That's roughly the, the long-term, the lifetime value for, for, for an insurer, for a life insurer. The goal, I think, is not to have the race to the bottom. If somebody is looking just for the life insurance and want to stick it in the drawer, that's great. Go into a comparison website. But there is so much more value to, to be had than insurers can actually provide. That means it's best not to not to have the race to the bottom. Some of the ways the insurers are coping with it now are also actually a, a little bit dubious. So one of the companies who comes up usually on right cheapest on top on the aggregator websites, if you go to their website and do the identical quote, you'll find it's 30% more expensive by going to their website. Um, another insurer has a different type of product on the on the aggregator websites to what you can only buy through them, which is which is poorer value. It doesn't include all the rewards. So, so they're I was stripping ask things that question. out. Yeah. So is it actually as a consumer, you know, is it worth buying this product online, or is this actually a product where you probably are better off? still for the time being speaking to somebody who knows what they're talking about I think absolutely it's fine to buy online it's just important that somebody does understand what they're doing and most of the policies are relatively simple Um, if you start getting into things like critical illness which pays a lump sum if the person gets a really serious illness then it becomes a lot more complicated and you have to understand what's actually being covered or not but life insurance itself as a standard product should be pretty comparable and standard. But the, the, in a sense, the consequences of, of getting it wrong are, are that bit more serious with, with life insurance. Well, you'll never know, so though. You, you'll, you'll never know. <laughs> you will never know. But, but if you get it wrong, potentially, it's, it's your dependents who are going to have, have you know, struggle to, to get by. If you get your travel insurance wrong and it turns out that your, your, your bag isn't insured when you thought it was, that's annoying. But really, it's not the end of the world. Whereas potentially for, for lots of different areas of life insurance, it's a lot more serious. Agreed. I, and and I, I would push the pressure onto the insurers to make sure that the policies are fit for purpose, at least at a very basic level, which most probably are already. Yeah, I mean, that, that's interesting because it's, it's always one of those, as you said, it's, it's already emotive, it's already expensive. The last thing you want to do is get the wrong one. So life insurance is actually not very expensive. There's actually quite a big also misconception around that. Um, you know, somebody who's in, in their late 20s could probably for £10 a month get two, £300,000 worth of cover. It's really not that expensive, especially if you start young, far cheaper than things like health insurance and, and all the others. Do you think that we need maybe a bigger drive to um, educating people younger? So we're starting to see more of a bigger drive. I mean, we sort of touched on this, but, you know, talking about pensions, you know, this auto-enrollment now, whether that, whether you agree with that or not is another question. Um, but, you know, people are at least aware of it now. So, you know, unless previously, unless you had parents who were telling you, you know, you need to start putting money aside from a very young age you just didn't know you didn't know what a pension was you didn't know you know where it went and how it worked do we need to start doing that kind of thing maybe either force employers to talk about it or add it as an added benefit i imagine what what you do uh, is is kind of we offer as a benefit through a company right yeah exactly i mean one of the big things that we we talk about is trying to give people or create we've created a package that we think people want that provides what they need at the same time so education yes very important but people don't want to listen they don't have to listen Um, i'm not a big fan of 
regulating it. I don't think people should be forced to have life insurance. I think the pensions is 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 makes more sense because of just the long term and the 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 effect it has on on the state. Um, so I think what we need to do and what we are trying to do is to create a package that people want and it provides what they need at the same time. I think people definitely need to to start thinking about it earlier because it it used to be in the old days of sort of final salary pension schemes that you, you went to work for an employer, you'd work for them for your whole career, and the employer would say, "Don't worry about your retirement. I've got it covered." Now you've got to decide for yourself how much you're going to save and your employer will put some money in. You've got to decide where you want to save it and where you want to invest it and how long you want to invest it for. And then when you retire, you've got to decide how long you think you might live and how, what you might think you need to do in all those years. I'm so I'm so looking forward to all of this. It's, it's, it's very you the know, worst you've thing got in to, life is that you should live too long. Yeah, you've got to be your own actuary, and it's 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 difficult apparently to be an actuary. I'm told. Yes, yes, yes. Right, it there's is. there's a business model. Let's find a digital actuary for people. So that that sort of brings up you know brings us towards the end of our roundtable discussion. Um, I would like to ask both of you, you know, what you think that the, the future of life insurance is, or what, what are the next changes that you think we're going to see. So we've talked quite a lot about what we'd like to see. Um, what do you think we're going to see more realistically in the next? Well, give me, you know, whatever time frame you like. I'm not going to say two years, five years, ten years. You know, what's next? I think what's next is probably quite a slow development. I think a lot of the life insurance companies in the UK are very traditional. And while they are trying to move some things digitally, it's still a very very sort of traditionally structured industry in which there's people who produce the products and then advisors of one sort or another who sell them and they're still very complicated and they still need to be sold. And I think it will take time for people to be comfortable doing it online. It really needs the industry to, to change things. Now, it's not changing things very fast. The kind of things you buy now are the same kind of things that you would have been buying 10 or 20 years ago. There's not a lot of radical change coming through. So we will see change in part driven by new companies coming in to, to the market, but I think it will be a quite a slow process of change. And those new companies coming into the market presumably have, you know, a better understanding of how people interact with them and, you know, advertising and that kind of thing. I mean, I'm sure you'll agree with me there. <laughs> of course I'll agree with you. Not all the new companies, only us, obviously. Okay, only you. <laughs> no, there, there are a lot of really great new companies coming along and, and tackling different parts of that value chain. And I agree that I think with the incumbents, it will be quite slow. Um, where I think they are doing quite well and better than the banks did is they're looking to partner earlier on with with startups. So a lot of the stuff I think that will change over the next few years is, is the front-end stuff. It's the way that it gets distributed. It's the way that um, the insurers talk to their clients and try and explain the product and bring them on. The actual underlying insurance, I think it's still quite a long time before the, the real dynamic type policies come uh, yeah. Again, it's, it's what we've, we've talked about quite a lot on this show, but it's the distribution will change first and then the business models will follow. Yeah, I think so. Brilliant. Well, that wraps up this discussion. Thank you so much to you both for joining me. Uh, where can our listeners find out more about you, Jonathan? Uh, do you have a Twitter handle, a website? I do. At Jonathan Rumer is my, uh, my my Twitter handle. That's J-O-N-A-T-H-A-N-R-O-O-M-E-R. Best go to our website, ulife.com. And yeah, from there, more than happy to chat to anyone. Perfect. And uh, how about you, Oliver? Uh, you can follow me on Twitter. It's at Oliver underscore Ralph. And you can find my articles on ft.com. Perfect. And you can find me at Sarah Kishansky on Twitter. Next up, I caught up with Adam Earlbacker, CEO and co-founder of Fabric Technologies at InsureTech Insights last month in London. He told us all about their recent $10 million funding round to help grow their business of life insurance policies for families. Let's hear from him now. I'm Sarah Kishansky and this is InsureTech Insider Interviews. I'm here with Adam Earlbacker from Fabric. How are you today, Adam? Great, thanks for having me. So Adam, you work for Fabric, as you said. Can you give us a little bit of an overview of what Fabric does? So Fabric is a full-stack digital life insurance company. We were founded in 2015 
Um, we're really building a place where all new parents can come to start their family's financial life. And we are now uh, national in the, in the United States. Um, we're based in New York City. And uh, we recently announced some funding of $10 million Series A. Congratulations. Thank you. It was led by Bessemer and a great partner. So happy to have them. And um, so you're, you're just US for now. Do you have any plans to move outside the US or is that your focus market for the time being? At the moment, uh, it's, it's our primary focus. Yeah. Uh, it's a big market. And um, you know, once, once we figure that out, uh, we'll be moving on. And uh, so what problems are there in the US life insurance market that you're setting out to solve? Yeah, so the, the life insurance world in, in the US and globally really is, is, is quite antiquated. Particularly in the US though, it requires usually two to three months of back and forth and health exams and all sorts of um, arcane details and paper. And we're really here to change all of that. The, the first product that we launched is life insurance for accidents only called Fabric Instant. Okay. Um, it's something that you can buy on your phone in about two minutes. Uh, we now have thousands of customers and uh, we offer an optional uh, upgrade opportunity for Fabric Premium, which is a 20-year term life insurance product. Um, what we found is that about two out of three of our customers who visited our site their very first visit actually bought a policy. And so we're, we're really doubling down now on that kind of instantaneous impulse buying experience where people may have been thinking about buying life insurance for a really long time, but they never really had something in front of them that was really, really easy to check off their list. And so we're really investing in that, um, that sort of instant buying experience and allowing people to sort of get done what they came to our site to do. So that, that first product, the first uh, product you talked about, which is the accident life insurance, is yeah. that, um, does that require less paperwork filling and less form filling? And then you move, you know, you get people in with that and then they move on to the second product. Yeah, it, it, exactly. Well, it's, it's all a digital process, right? Okay. So when, when you buy Fabric Instant, because there's no really health component to it, there's no kind of under, there's no underwriting. It's what's called a guaranteed issue product. Okay. Um, so with just a few details about yourself, we can actually... Uh, give you a policy. Um, there's no, uh, there's even no quoting process. Like we know exactly how much the price is. We have sort of a small, medium, and large size policy. The kind of lowest policy, smallest policy, is six dollars a month for a hundred thousand dollars. It starts it starts at that, and you can really just buy it in, in about two minutes on your phone. And that's to kind of protect you if you may, if you get sorry, protect your family if you get hit by a bus yeah, or if you something more. Any kind of an accident. Okay. Exactly. And then the, the second, the Fabric Premium product, that's a more in-depth, so that would cover you for long-term illness and that kind of thing. Not long-term illness, but it's a, it's a life insurance product. So if you do pass away from any, any sort of a cause uh, that's covered under the policy, so any sort of accident or you know, health issue. Right, uh, so it's the health issue is the added component exactly, for that exactly. bit. Because yeah. we have to get a better sense of what your, yeah. your health and lifestyle choices are. So are you a smoker, are you, do you exercise, oh, exactly, that kind of stuff? Exactly, exactly. And you can do all that digitally without a medical exam? So that's actually part of where we're investing heavily right now. And, um, and we'll have some more news on that coming soon. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Okay. And um, just one, one last question. When we talk about sort of health insurance and that, and that ties very heavily into life insurance as well, what do you do? You do anything with like wearable technology? Um, any of the kind of like health? Yeah, no, that's a great question. You know, we, we looked into that um, when we were first starting the company, and we had a few ideas around health and how health and wellness can be tied into, uh, into our product. I, you know, what we found is that uh, wearables were, um, were, were sort of interesting from fitness perspective, but it's really quite unproven how taking a certain number of steps actually translates to mortality. And a lot of people didn't feel comfortable, I think more importantly, sharing that kind of information with their insurance company. They want to sort of check this off their list and get on with their life. Yeah. So it was really an interesting idea that 
didn't really prove out when we put it in front of customers. Oh, so when they buy life insurance policy, is there any kind of long-term engagement with that, or do they tend to buy it and then move away and, don't, and you know you don't speak to them again for, yeah. until the next yeah. year? Well, so there, there absolutely is long-term engagement. A lot of it is around education around life insurance products and other financial products. Because this is something, this is a product that you buy not every day, right? Yeah. When, when you go shopping for a bank, use a bank or your credit card every day. And so people are generally familiar uh, around how that works. But when you go and try and buy life insurance, it's, it's a one-off or you know, maybe a few times uh, in your life you're actually shopping for a product like that. And so it's not something that a lot of people know much about. So a lot of what we do is educational. And so we provide a lot of free tools on our site to let people understand or allow people to understand better the choices that they have to make. Uh, and we also build very, very simple products so it's clear what you're buying, what it includes, what it doesn't. Um, so, yes. And um, just one last question. Why do you focus on new parents? You mentioned that at the beginning. I just yeah, have to circle yeah. back around. Yeah, so when you become a parent, really everything changes. And you have a new responsibility that, that you never really, never considered before. And so finding financial protection when you have a kid is really, it's one of those life triggers that makes people kind of think, oh, how can I help solve this problem of financial security for my family? The other times are maybe when you buy a house. But really when you have a kid, that's the very first time when you start thinking, how can I protect it's like this? It's a trigger in your it's mind. A, it's exactly that. And so we want to be there for families when they, when they take that step. And then also as they mature over time, what are all the other products that, that new parents need to help prepare their, their family? So would you add other financial service products to your raft of products in the future? Yeah, over time, absolutely. We actually just launched a free digital will. So that, oh, okay. that's something that people can check off their list very quickly. Yep. And we can also give them uh, life insurance and, and we'll, be, we'll be rolling out other products over time. Perfect. Well, we look forward to hearing more from you in the future. Thank, Thank you, you so much for joining me. Thanks so much. I'm here with David Vanek, co-founder of Anorak. Welcome to the show. Hello, thank you. So could you start off by giving us a quick overview of what Anorak does and what your role is there? Anorak is a smart life insurance advisor and it gives everyone easy access to regulated, transparent and impartial life insurance advice. So on Anorak, you get access to life insurance option in less time than it takes to book a train to somewhere. Like UK. Cheltenham, for example. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> and so what kind of what are the main problems that you you as Anorak are solving? So obviously there must be some problems with the existing life insurance industry that you're aiming to to solve or or to make life easier for people. I think the the, the bigger picture is that there is a massive undercoverage problem in the UK. Millions of people should have life insurance have very little saving, a pile of debt, and are not covered. And we think that's because the access to those products are broken. Mm -hmm. People have no idea what they need. And the only way currently to get life insurance is to go the old way to talk to an advisor on the phone or face to face. And this targets mostly affluent people and they leave an entire part of the market untapped. So we're breaking this bottleneck and we are making access to life insurance product and personalized advice for everyone. And, and how, how do you go about doing that? So we were just, you know, we were talking, I was talking to some other panelists and saying, you know, uh, if I type life insurance into Google, I get a million and one different results. And normally you're doing it because something's happened. You've had a baby or you've got married or you've bought a house. You know, how do you as Anorak help kind of break that down and make it easier for people to understand what they actually need? So we've created an automated advice platform that is integrated by distributors. It can be a price comparison website, a bank, anyone who's got those life events triggered. Okay? And we enable those distributors to start a digital conversation about life insurance and tell people what they need. We don't think the products are the problem. We think that it's letting people know exactly how much cover they need, for how long, why, 
and what is the most suitable product for them. This is what Anorak does. So you're um, solving what we, we talked about earlier, which was the education problem, actually. So a lot of people, it, it's just helping people understand much more easily and quickly and simply what it is they actually need to do. Yes, we move them from having the nagging feeling that they should be doing mm-hmm. something to getting things done. What a broker should be doing to them, but they don't talk to brokers. We are digitizing the whole experience and making it easily accessible. And so presumably you then um, you direct people to policies provided by, some, by, by, by existing life insurers. Exactly. So what we tell people is what is at risk, how much protection they need and why. And then we match them with the best suited product from leading life insurance companies in the UK. There are 20 life insurance companies that count in the UK and we provide uh, access to all of them. And so what you're doing is um, is, is helping people. So we, we were discussing earlier that actually price comparison sites are not particularly effective for this type of product because you don't necessarily just want the cheapest one because everybody's circumstances are different. So you're breaking down that barrier to a certain extent? I think the problem is slightly different. A, a price comparison website cannot give you advice. They are not regulated for that. Mm-hmm. So when you go to a price comparison website, you need to know exactly what to buy. And this is the big question. They start asking you how much cover you need when it's really the end of the conversation. So we tell you exactly what you need and why, and then you can buy what is the most suitable for you. And one thing that you should be uh, aware of is that price comparison websites are very small in the life insurance space. They didn't manage to crack it. Uh, as opposed to what they've done in motor insurance. So there is a massive opportunity to take that space and and not leave it to them. And why do you think that is? So uh, is it because it's maybe a more emotive purchase? Is it because people don't want to think about dying or you know premature death or anything like that? Because you don't wake up in the morning thinking, <laughs> I need to buy a life insurance. So there is there needs to be uh, an emotional conversation that happens. And, and that kind of trigger maybe that buying a house, having a baby, whatever Exactly, your life event. And then you need to be guided or advised to what you should be buying which is currently what offline brokers do. But there is a much more modern and efficient way to do it online and uh, scaling to everyone. And so what technologies are you using to help you do that? So, you know, for a start, you know, what kind of data sources are you looking at? And then what else are you using that helps you do this, which hasn't previously been possible? So it's a very complex uh, technology stack that combines uh, actual data, uh, data science and and engineering, Mm -hmm. IT. And we've mixed that. It took us 18 months to create Anorak, the mm-hmm. technology platform. And we're using any piece of data that we, we can find, personal data, but as well open data, uh, ONS data, bank transaction data. Anything we have can be transformed into a very personalized advice for uh, fighting the financial vulnerability of anyone. And when you're talking about personal data, uh, we always have the conversation of it, of it a it, it, well, it being quite creepy. You know, there's a certain amount of data which people are like, actually, I don't want to provide you with that or kind of how you respond to it. How do you go about making sure that you're getting you know, the information you need from people without them feeling that you're stepping too far? Surprisingly, people, when it comes to a life insurance conversation, are very comfortable sharing data because they think that if you don't ask enough, it's not credible and okay. it's not personalized. So price comparison website, the good thing they've done to this market is they've, mm, ma- they've made people sharing data mm-hmm. and filling forms. I think there are much smarter way to do it. But I mean, having data from people is necessary and they are aware of that. And, and so what format does Anorak use? Do you have, are you kind of a chat bot? Like how, does, how do people interact with you? So Anorak is, uh, is a, has a B2B2 uh, market access. So we are integrated with distribution partner. So we talk to people the way the partner wants to talk. It can be a form, 
can be uh, something much smarter, connecting your bank account, mm -hmm. can be any uh, combination of the, of the two or the three. It really depends on what is the journey we want to design. Brilliant. That, that's kind of where you are and you know, the problems you're aiming to solve. What, what's next for, for both you guys and also for, for the industry generally? You know, what changes are we going to see happening in the life insurance industry? So the problem of this industry is that it doesn't feel the heat yet. Margins are very high. No one really look at this. Entrepreneurs don't really look at this market because when you think insurance, usually you think car insurance. Mm -hmm. So no one is really disrupting that space. So it's going to take a long time. But we think the next thing for us is to be plugged in as many distribution platforms as we can to make it accessible. And the next challenge is to make those products, the life insurance product like ULife, the new generation of product accessible. So design product that you can truly buy online easily. So you would work with some of the insure techs that are coming through changing the business models to, to, to sell these new types of product to people? Absolutely. We are the gateway, but we are happy to plug with any innovative product. And some of the life insurance companies in the UK are forward-looking. Uh, the likes of Royal London are doing some very good things, but not many of them. And do you think we will see more of the kind of the specialized products? You talk about personalization there, but one of the things, the big things that comes up when you talk about life insurance is people who have pre-existing conditions, that kind of thing. Do you think we'll start to see more of those specialized products coming through as well? More segmentation that has been going on in the PNC space for a long time, but not in life insurance. Because life insurance, you, you really file the claim probably 20 years after uh, you've been priced, so it's complicated to change. But yes, you'll see a connected product. You'll see products that are a more lifestyle adaptive. So many things are coming. It's going to take time. Perfect. Well, thank you so much for joining us. Um, if people want to find out more about you or Anorak, where could they do that? Do you have a Twitter handle, a website? Yes, they can go on anorak.life, our website, and they can uh, go on my Twitter if they want, David uh, Vanek one Perfect. Thank you so much. You're welcome. Thank you. And that wraps up another InsureTech Insider. Thank you so much to all my guests, David, Jonathan, Oliver, and Adam. And as always, you can find the show on Twitter at InsureTech Insiders. And if you like what you've heard this week, don't forget to subscribe to our podcast and please, please do leave us a review. If you have any suggestions or feedback, please reach out on Twitter or email podcasts at 11fs.com. 